News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm your co-host, Harry Siegel. Coming to you from Brooklyn, as executive producer Alex Brooklyn and I are joined in just a moment by David Platz, the former Slate editor-in-chief and Atlas Obscura CEO, to hear about CityCast, his forthcoming network of podcasts, The Promise, to connect you with the city you love. Then co-host Christina Greer and I talk with Walter Shapiro, a lecturer of political science at Yale who's covering his 11th presidential campaign for the New Republic. We've got lots to dig into, so let's get right to it. David, thanks so much for joining us. You know, as a local podcast, I couldn't be more excited to see that you're launching CityCast, a network coming soon of daily local podcasts. And I hope you could uh, take us through how this came to be, what it's going to be, and why it is you say that you believe the future is going to be local. Thanks. It's great to be here uh, on a daily or on a local podcast, excuse me, not a daily podcast, but on a local podcast. CityCast is a network of podcasts that we're going to build starting this winter of daily news podcasts for cities around the country. And the purpose of it, the belief is that cities right now are the kind of crucible of American life because of pandemic, because of the economic crisis, because of the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for social and racial justice. And we need a way for people in cities to sort of rethink how they live in cities, rethink what it means to be part of a community, and also to sort of stop being obsessed with the question of Trump. There's been this addiction to Trump in the past few years, when really what matters most to how people live are the kind of questions of daily life that are played out on the streets of American cities. And Local journalism, as I don't need to tell you and I don't need to tell your listeners, has been in a state of terrible decline, that we've lost 2,000 newspapers in the last 15 years. About a fifth of all American newspapers have vanished. The ones that remain in most cities and towns are in dire shape. The media ecosystem that has arisen to try to fill the space that those newspapers have left is weak. And so many places are suffering from a, they're not quite news deserts, but they are, they're in in the midst of news droughts and they're, they don't know how to think about themselves. They don't have a central focal point. They don't have a gathering place. And my belief is that podcasts, which are so intimate and so uh, curious and so passionate and inspire such feelings in, in listeners are an amazing way to rebuild a kind of sense of community around news and the sense of enthusiasm and passion around news in in local communities that has really declined over the past generation. So one of the interesting things in New York is we've had a lot of this Trump obsession. The early voting lines here have been around blocks and three-hour waits. And of course, there's very little doubt about what's going to happen in the presidential election. And most people here have no competitive races on the ballot. So I'm wondering if next year in our mayoral race, where the primary for the first time is in June, if we're going to see turnout anything like this. I wonder, though, with these news deserts, even in a relatively healthy environment like New York, we've seen all these attempts to create local networks, uh, for-profit ones that have failed. DNA Info is maybe the model here, which was hindered by its horrible name. 
so that their sales staff was constantly having to explain, no, no, we're not a medical exam website, even as they were doing terrific reporting. But a lot of the advances here have actually been on the nonprofit side. So WNYC 8 Gothamist, and that's been a very successful operation, although they often neglect the outer boroughs uh, substantially. And the Bronx, for instance, is still in a news draft. You're doing this as a for-profit model. And I'm curious why and how you see that as a a business proposition working out, not to get too deep into the weeds, but I I think a lot of us are are very thirsty to figure out what the answer is. And with Facebook and these other large internet companies sucking up the money and places like Patch that haven't quite made it, how this could work and and, and maybe create a, a better, more healthy environment for people to engage locally. And finally, how this works with podcasts, which unlike radio, you can't quite have callers So there are challenges there in terms of building that engagement. Yeah, starting at the back end, starting at the live aspect of it, I do think that one of the things that we're going to have to figure out with doing this as on-demand audio as as a podcast is how do you replicate that sense of immediate community and gathering that radio does have? And that's going to be one of the challenges. I think there have been really clever efforts. I mean, Reply All, the Gimlet podcast, has done an amazing job creating a sense of direct engagement with listeners that doesn't depend on it being live at that second. Um, You asked a bunch of questions there. I mean, there's sort of like the model of like, what what about these for-profit efforts that have tried? What about the nonprofit model? I mean, I think one thing I really want to distinguish uh, CityCast from some of the other efforts is that CityCast is not going to immediately invest in a heavy news gathering operation. I don't think that the economics of of podcasting or really even the economics of local in most places can sustain a heavy investment in reporters at the moment. And that means we're going to have to be in places that already have media ecosystems or there is already news being created. We're going to be part of an ecosystem. We are not going to come in and say, like, we are going to cover City Hall. We're going to cover transportation. We're going to have a reporter who's who's just on sewers. That is not going to work. I mean, the economics of that are really prohibitive. What I think that podcasts do amazingly well is really driven by hosts. And I, when I think about what CityCast is going to be, it's much more in the model of what Oprah used to be when she was at AM Chicago or what a great columnist like a Breslin uh, used to be, that cities used to have people who saw themselves as the voice of the city, who saw themselves as embodying somehow the city they were in. And they couldn't, you know, obviously they couldn't fully embody it. You can't, like some random middle-aged white guy cannot represent a, a multivariate, like deeply diverse city of, of 8 million people. But there was a, the sense that these that these folks have, and sometimes they were local TV anchors, sometimes they were radio people, sometimes they were newspaper columnists, was that they really sought to to channel the whole city. They loved the city more than anyone else, and they thought it was more fucked up than anyone else did, and they were bound and determined to to celebrate that love and to like fix the problems that they saw. And so that that is not a news gathering model. It's a much more kind of convening in in as as the passionate voice of the city to amplify the news issues to draw attention to them, but not to gather them. And so I think that the cost structure of something like that is very different than the cost structure of something like DNA info or the city or any of the places that are, that are dependent on heavily investing in reporters. That said, for-profit is challenging. Um, Not-for-profit is also challenging. Not-for-profits have to pay the same salaries that for-profits do. So everyone has the 
this, this set of challenges. We have a great owner, the Graham Holding Company, which is a long storied history in local journalism. They were the owner of the Washington Post for forever. They were the magnificent Graham family that owned the Washington Post. They still own six local TV stations. They were a huge investor in Gimlet. They own Megaphone, which is a big podcast data and hosting company. They own Slate, my former employer. And they're really deeply committed to this project. And so I think having an, an owner that has the resources to commit to it will give us some shot of success. And on the economics of it, it is true that for-profit media companies are, you know, there aren't as many of them as, as you'd like. And a lot of the ones that used to be profitable are no longer profitable. But podcasting as an ecosystem is growing. Its growth rate is excellent. The fact that we are going to be a network, not just a single podcast. If you are a single podcast in a single city, you cannot possibly get the scale to plug into the big ad buys that we will be able to plug into if we build a popular network. Sorry, is it is it one podcast per city or is it uh, like a, a like a little multiverse of podcasts in each city? Good question. At the moment, we're going to start with one podcast. So we're going to start with a signature podcast for each city that we go into. And then hopefully, if we see success and we we see a real audience that we can spin off podcasts that are more focused within that city if they're if, if that works. But at the moment, it's sort of like, let's let's try to build one great podcast in a handful of cities to start and see where where that takes us. But my dream is a network, which is quite vast. So Michael Daly gave a beautiful eulogy at Jimmy Breslin's funeral about the importance of place and Breslin's ties to the uh, city. Uh, Daly, who's a fantastic columnist, left the Daily News about a decade ago now to go to the Daily Beast, where I've had the pleasure of editing him. He knows more about New York and writes more beautifully about it than probably anyone else. And he had to step out of that role. Right now, there are basically two columnists left in all of New York City. They both have other full-time jobs. I can't think of a a TV figure who's sort of that voice of the city. It seems like in some ways and this might be what you're trying to revive, that that role has dissipated in recent years. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about why and how this might help to return it. Yeah, I mean, I think the role has certainly dissipated. I mean, I don't know the New York world the way you guys do, of course, but people have said to me, well, Errol Lewis could be this kind of figure for the city and that Brian Lehrer has, in some ways, has embodied this. There are a couple of things to think about. One is New York is a super rich media ecosystem in a way that most cities are not like most cities don't have even the luxury of having two columnists like that. Most cities like they're, they're in such decline that, that they haven't tried this or in the case of like a Denver or Salt Lake city or a Boise or Phoenix, like they've never really had that culture to begin with. Like it wasn't something that's declined. These are cities that have grown explosively in the past generation and are looking to understand themselves they don't really know who they are. They have grown massively. The, the population that lives there is, has mostly moved there in the past you know, 10, 15 years. And, and people are trying to sort of make sense of what that, what that city is. And I think it, in those cities that have experienced hyper growth in, in the past generation, like there is a hunger to understand what does it mean to be a Denverite, that this could 
feed. And the cities that where we more mature East Coast cities, which have had rich media environments for many years where that role has vanished, I think it's vanished because of two reasons. One is like even in a city like New York, there's a kind of timidity about speaking grandly for the city. Like it's a hard thing to carry out. And I think there's a real representation problem, which is that like most of the people who were these figures were white guys and cities no longer, you cannot get away with just saying like, oh yeah, we have a white guy who's going to be the, the swashbuckling columnist for this place. It just doesn't work. Like it, you have to think about who is it that is living in cities? Who's it, you know, who needs to be represented here? And there's a, I think there's a worry that any one single person trying to embody that is going to run into difficulty. And so people don't try. I would uh, I would actually jump in to say that I don't necessarily agree that we don't have people like that. I think that those people are probably a little absent from cities that have a very insulated and inaccessible kind of press core. Like um, there's a lot of people on New York One. We have columnists that if you make it to the editorial page, you'll know who they are. But then there's also these ambassadors for the city. I know, for instance, a New York example would be one would be New York Nico. And he has been running pretty much on third party platforms, Facebook, Instagram and the like for a few years now, going to every single borough, trying to represent and talk to every kind of person. So it's not exactly an interview show and it's not exactly news. However, Nicholas Heller is his name. He does know about the political goings on in the city. And it is sewn through. Uh, we just had a very famous barbershop, Astor Place, closed. And he had been going there and sort of was of this place and did a, a piece on it. He was actually one of the first people to alert that this was closing. And for us post-COVID, for New Yorkers post-COVID, stores closing is just, it's a huge signal to how this city is going to change in the future. And it has brought in a lot of people who don't usually read about the news to watch the blight and to watch the stores close into what are we going to do about this? So it, it forces them to look further into what's happening politically. And they usually do that through like uh, someone who's in the culture for everything from sneaker culture to politics, which I guess leads me to the question other than politics and sort of documenting in the columnist model, is there room for fiction and uh, literature and interviews and things that are other than just like a reported, I, you know, I'm going to bring you the news of the city. Yeah. I mean, I, I, if I, suggested that I thought this should be a politics first or politics primary. I, I misrepresent it. I do not think that. I mean, I don't, I don't think that most people walk through their lives really that super concerned about what the mayor, even in New York, what the mayor did. Certainly where I live in Washington, they don't. They're much more concerned about the fact that the roads, like the main roads in DC are deeply fucked up. Why is that? or that these restaurants, like why is there this whole set of restaurant closings downtown? So the hosts of these, of CityCast are going to have to be less people who are kind of like, I'm super plugged into City Hall, although they might be that, and more people who are just intensely curious about their city and have a really strong point of view about it. And they may come out of one 
particular subject. Like they might come out of city hall or they might come out of restaurants or they might come out of being a, a transportation obsessive. And that, that, that obsession will hopefully infiltrate everything they do, but they're going to have to be interested in the culture, be interested in the arts, be interested in food, be interested in transportation, be interested in schools and kids and seniors. I mean, so this kind of pantheonic curiosity is going to be really important. I think the fiction piece of it is like, I hadn't even thought about that. There's a kind of really interesting idea. Like, I love the idea that you could have somebody who is somehow like representing the city through something which isn't true. Um, that's a kind of great idea. Got to think about that. Well, that was before I knew you that you had uh, one podcast. That question formed before I knew you had one podcast per city. But yeah, I mean, I would listen to a podcast about the city now from the point of view of a fictional character. Absolutely. Right. That's a great idea. <laughs> do it. Do it. Do it if I don't do it. So so let me ask for, for listeners who may be interested in this in particular. Right now, there's a website up at citycast.fm. You said that you're looking to launch. This is ambitious this, this winter, right? Yes. So right now, I, we announced it this week at citycast.fm because we wanted to find great hosts and producers. So what I'm really doing right now is I, the reason I want to talk to you and the reason I want to reach your audience is that I hope that among your listeners, there are amazing uh, potential hosts who think like, you know what, I really have a strong feeling about this city and I would like to host. Or there are people who are, who are great producers who think, you know what, CityCast is, represents something new. It seems good. Like, hey, And the jobs have actual benefits and salaries and uh, with a real company, maybe I should try it. So please go to citycast.fm slash jobs and check out the jobs that we have available. And so, yeah, for right now we're going to, I'm sort of talking about this as much as I can for a bit. And then I want to go find great people to work with. And the city that I'm working in, the cities that we're going to launch in, it's really dependent on where I find great colleagues. So uh, I hope, I hope that among these listeners today, are some great colleagues who are excited about this project. We were talking right before you came on, and you know, four of the five boroughs would be one of the seven largest cities in America independently. And you know, New York is not a news desert, although the Times has you know given up on a lot of its coverage, uh, sadly. But it's remarkable to me that there's not a single reporter covering the courts in the Bronx or in Queens, where there's a courthouse uh, press room that is just not occupied on most days. I mean, I think that to do a city cast out of Queens would be amazing. Oh. I think it would be so great to do a Queens city. Queens is like the most interesting half of a city in the world. Hire so. Katie Honan. She, she is my single favorite. No offense to everyone else. Queens reporter David Brand is wonderful, but like Queens is his own world. And it's one that is uh, epically undercover. I'm going to shout out to David Brand here. Um, but yeah, Katie definitely fills her Twitter feed with all things going on Queens for sure. And then thank you again for taking the, uh, the time closing question here. Do you see this potential closing questions? Cause I do like to stack them on. Uh, do you see this potentially as a model that, that could proceed internationally? Do you see this as a model in which potentially there, there's some national version which is taking parts and bits from these individual podcasts or does each one, even if they're sharing advertising, perhaps like live and die separately. That is, and you know, to use the uh, buzzword of a few years ago, is this meant to be uh, human sized or is this meant to be uh, scalable in those ways as a business proposition? 
Well, it's certainly meant to be scalable as a business proposition. I don't think that Tim O'Shaughnessy, the CEO of Graham Holding, he, he's not interested in building something which is just like a small thing in a, in one city or two. It's the idea is that this really should be a network and it will benefit from a network effect. The, whether there's a nationalized version of it, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. And certainly an international version, absolutely. I've been overwhelmed with people from all around the world who say, I really want to do this in my city. I mean, I've I've got the best host in Finland already lined up to do it, uh, for in Helsinki, I should say. Uh, but right now it's like, just, just getting it off the ground in, in the U S uh, is going to be the challenge and seeing it, making it work here is, is the first thing that I want to figure out. And once we figure that out, then the world is next. So if you find a host in like Kalamazoo, Michigan, who just like does it, you just kind of like nails it and would be able, and everyone would want to listen to this person. Like that's on the table as well. Yeah, that's totally on the table. I think Kalamazoo is an interesting, I don't know how big Kalamazoo is. I I think for me, just in order to get the kind of audience you need, the base case is probably you need about 250,000 people in a city, in a kind of relatively concise region to make the economics start to work. So I, I don't know how where Kalamazoo is there. And and you'd also need a great producer in Kalamazoo too. So it's like it, it's you can't just find one person. You actually have to find at least two people. I don't actually uh, know either. It's just like I know that it's a place that exists and has a great name, so I threw yeah. it out there. No, I mean, I, I'm as I've I've been absolutely overwhelmed, drowning in in great uh, letters from people who are interested in working at CityCast, and they come from all over the country, and there are a couple of cities that have really emerged that I was like, huh, I did not think that this would be a great city, but it looks like there's a lot of talent here and there's a lot of interest, so maybe we should we should jump there. So we'll see. So maybe you should have taken that left turn in Albuquerque uh, to quote Bugs. To quote Bugs Bunny, yeah. There we go. Very last question. You you were the CEO of uh, Atlas Obscura, uh, which was really about sort of secret and unknown places, and in some sense, metaphorically at least, in like an invisible city sense, spread out places. This is really about cities as, uh, as dense places where lots of people are convening are you finding anything here that is sort of itching that part of your brain about Atlas Obscura? Are you finding out any really cool new things about cities yet uh, that you didn't as these these pitches and letters are coming in? Not yet, because I'm so overwhelmed. I'm just, I'm just trying to just triage. So right at the moment, I am not delving into detail about what the wonderful thing in uh, Kalamazoo, to name the city of the moment, is. But hopefully uh, I will. I mean, certainly CityCast scratches the same itch that Atlas Obscura did, which is that I think there's this tendency in the world to believe, I mean, I think Trump, going back to this Trump addiction, that with Trump, everything has been nationalized and everything is this national kind of issue. And actually, we live in really specific places. Like each of us lives in a place that is distinct and unique. And as much as there's been a you know nationalization of chains and a nationalization of politics, like actually where I live is very different from where you live. And where you live is very different from where your friend who lives in Kalamazoo lives. And celebrating that difference and that distinctiveness is really important. And it's what gives us our strong sense of identity. And, and I want to celebrate that. And, and that was the same thing I'd like to do at Atlas Obscura. And I hope that CityCast ends up doing it uh, as well. David, thank you uh, so much for taking the time. And I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to get to listen to uh, CityCast soon. 
Uh, yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, guys. It was a total pleasure. And with that, let's shift from the local view to the national one with veteran reporter, all-around character, and future vaudeville critic, Walter Shapira. Hi, Walter. Thank you so much for joining us at FAQ NYC. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, well, this is an honor. And um, it also gives me keeps me off the streets um, as I'm <laughs> nervously pacing until Election Day. <laughs> right. So we met on a panel uh, on Valentine's Day, right after the New Hampshire and Iowa primary and caucus. And we had lots of thoughts. Uh, we did not All know of them what wrong. we were about to... <laughs> I don't know. Let's go. We might need to replay the tape. Uh, neither one of us predicted a global pandemic. I will say that. So you were now covering your 11th campaign. Besides the global pandemic, what feels different this time for you? Okay. First. Or, or does it? Does it not? Everything does. Let's start. Okay. First of all, the biggest thing that feels different is I'm talking to you from West 86th Street. I am not talking to voters in Ohio Iowa, Arizona, places where I normally would be going right now. Because the point about talking to voters, at least when I do it, is to sort of put faces on poll numbers. Um, I remember the guy outside of a polling place in Nottingham, New Hampshire, on election day 2016, who said, when I asked him who he voted for, he said, it's a long story. I went in there deciding not to vote for president. But as I stared at the ballot, I realized I hated Hillary a little more than I hated Trump. So I voted for Trump. New Hampshire went for Hillary. If you want an emblematic 2016 voter, that was this guy. And it really bothers me that I cannot go out there and find those kind of voters to explain 2020 to me. I used to make fun of all the TV pundits who had never been more that in the entire campaign, more than five miles from a green room in New York or Washington. Um, and I've sort of become the person I hate. <laughs> no, not during a pandemic. I mean, it sounds like, you know, as, as someone who's who's been birding lately, it sounds like you're a bird with, with your wings clipped just a touch. Yeah, uh, just a touch. I, I mean, it is not psychologically healthy to check the Nate Silver forecast nine times a day and also then say, only 87% Biden, I better check the economist model. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the, the point is, going back to your question, what's different? What's also really different is, number one, the fact that reporters are not out there in droves to give an augmented view of the polls. Number two, the fact is we've never had early voting like this in our lives. And I think this morning we have hit something like 85% of the total 2016 turnout in early voting in terms of the votes cast early. And this doesn't count absentees in the mail. We have equaled the Kennedy-Nixon turnout for 1960 nationally. Mm. So this is totally changed. Third thing that has changed by all indications I'm talking to pollsters, polling has gotten quantumly better, that in 2016, pollsters did not, for the most part, um, account for educational differences, which led to an oversampling of college-educated voters 
uh, which meant that there was in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, an oversampling of Hillary voters, which led to certain um, disappointments on election day. Pollsters have learned from that. Also, one of the big problems with polling is that no one would answer their phones. Suddenly we are in an era of a pandemic where everyone is stuck at home. And my phone rings and they say, um, your warranty has expired. Um, my car warranty, uh, even though I don't have a car, I'm really happy to chat with them for 10 or 15 minutes about <laughs> the warranty I might have if I had a car, because anything beats just staying home in silence. So the, lots of people are answering polling questions who would have been unreachable in the past. A fourth thing, of course, is never have we had such a threat to orderly functioning of democracy in the person of Donald J. Trump and all of his threats not to abide by the results, all of the fears that, um, some of the fears I think are totally outlandish. I think the Atlantic Monthly in particular is in the liberal fear industry where a rogue Pennsylvania legislature will uh, deliver the state's electoral votes to Trump regardless of what the voters say. Uh, I think some of that stuff is nonsense. But on the other hand, we are also dealing with record voter suppression. And that is before Amy Coney Barrett has, shall we say, uh, brought um, her impartial judicial ways to the Supreme Court. Mm. So you brought up early voting. There's been massive turnout in New York City, which has this really for the first time this week where you can show up to a handful of polling places, maybe not your usual ones, and vote. I have found this just a little frustrating in that if you're not in South Brooklyn, there's literally nothing on the ballot this year that's uh, that's the least bit competitive. But there's all this pent-up desire, I think, to have your votes registered. And, of course, we have a uh, really incompetent board of elections here locally. Oh, really incompetent, I think, is understating it. It's nice work if you can get it, right? Like, yeah, oh, exactly, exactly. Even though the people, the actual human beings I've always encountered on the polls on the Upper West Side are exceedingly nice, serious, mean well, uh, median age 87, but so bad. <laughs> so if you're in a state like New York, in a city like New York, what is driving people to, to show up and to show up early in this very weird year and with, with really very little doubt about the outcome? Just just to turn this local for a, uh, a quick minute. Oh, here. no, no, no. Oh, I, I want to be a local because I am debating when I vote uh, that normally I would stroll to the polls on Election Day, wait 10 minutes, vote, know um, that my vote didn't matter one whit. You know, I mean... Jerry Nadler survived a primary, but the general election, shall we say, is not one that's going to keep him up late at night. Uh, and of course, I think it took the Board of Election a month to count the votes for that primary. But more than that, I think there is a certain anti-Trump feeling that if you vote early, somehow your vote counts six times and you get to cast one ballot in Iowa, one in Arizona, and one in Pennsylvania in addition to New York vote. I mean, the closest analogy I can think of is to a a protest, you know, that you're marching, mm -hmm. even though you realize that the march 
will not have any larger effect that is sort of a expression of who you are. And, you know, it's like panic hoarding of toilet paper. I never worried about when to vote. I didn't have to make a plan. It was walk two blocks and vote. It was not hard. And now I'm, oh, you know, I, I mean, it's like, do I go on Wednesday? Do I go on Tuesday? Do I go in the afternoon? Do I go when it's, it might rain, in which case other people will be dissuaded? And I realize that I am giving way to the same panic that has affected, you know, that said, early voting seems to be taking place, particularly among Democrats across the board. And it is, if there were down ballot elections of consequence, one of the problems with too much early voting is uh, if you're rushing to vote for president and there's a state Senate race in your district, you may just not know anything about the state Senate race. And I've always wanted uh, somebody uh, who is more adept with statistics than I am to correlate early voting with straight ticket voting. Because I think to a large extent, every good government reform from about the 1950s to the 1990s were um, to discourage straight ticket voting. States like Connecticut, where I grew up, had a party lever where you would just vote for the entire one one thing and you can vote for every per member of the party. And uh, I think New York always with the lever machines still had to do that little click thing. God, do I miss the lever machines. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> but the point is with early voting, I wonder if all of those good government reforms to encourage split ticket voting, uh, particularly down ballot, have been undermined. You know, less so in New York, but just imagine, I remember in a state like Ohio, where I spent a lot of time covering uh, fall campaigns, in the last week before the election, the state Senate candidates would be on Columbus, Ohio television. They had limited funds. They just had enough money for one week of ads. But when Ohio went to early voting, uh, if you have $200,000 to put on television, if you split it over seven weeks, um, no one's going to see your ad. But if you wait for the last week, oh, too many people will have already voted. You know, so I have very complicated feelings about early voting, even though I am giving way to the, oh, my God, there might be a line on Election Day. So to beat the line on Election Day, I'll stand in an earlier line the week before. I've got just one more local one here. It's been a confusing week. There was massive early voting turnout over the weekend, which was the first two days of this, and then more massive on Monday. So you do start gaming this out. Like, are, are people going to... Yeah, yeah that, that I am going to go this afternoon um, up to uh, 102nd Street, where half the West Side votes. And if the line is long, I'm going to say, okay, not voting today. The, what they're doing is they're cannibalizing election day turnout. So I will just saunter into my polling place that's closer than 102nd Street on election day, wait for two minutes and cast my ballot. And shockingly enough, it will be counted. Be, uh, you know, while the Board of Elections and absentee ballots are why I'm voting in person, but it really doesn't matter in terms of voting in person whether I show up to show up a week before the election or on election day. 
make sure you check the hours, right? It starts at noon today. Later in the week, it starts at 8 a.m. It's a different place for most people than you're casting your vote on election day. It is a confusing system. But my other local question for you here, and it's a fun one because it's totally definitionally unanswerable, is how different is the 2021 mayoral race and other city contests in New York depending on what happens next week in Washington? Well, I think to a large extent, there's going to be a, I can get things done with Biden um, motif to a lot of Democrats running in the mayoral uh, primary next year. Am I correct? This is the first primary we're going to do with ranked choice voting. So I'm already trying to figure out who's my number seven pick. And um, I actually have mixed feelings about ranked choice voting. On one hand, I like it for primaries, which allows you to allocate votes and think things through. I hate it for general elections because all it does is create a whole race of Mike Bloomberg's who no longer even have to go through the guise of running as a Republican because, Mm. because they can just go on the ballot as independents There's not the wasted vote problem that causes people to to vote for a major party candidate. And I just think that we're going to have, uh, if New York went to ranked choice voting uh, for the fall elections, there is not going to be one hedge fund manager who resides in the city who will not seriously think about running for mayor. Wow. Yeah. Well, we know that rich men wake up every morning. It's like, I should be president. I should be mayor. It's like... Says who? Um, Okay, I have a comment and then a question for you. So I think we should tap our good friend Bob Shapiro from Columbia University to help you answer your early voting, party line voting question, since Bob Shapiro loves statistics. Oh, I think that would be great because it's just a guess. And it is, since all the good government groups now are so in favor of early voting, that it is now so against the grain to admit there may be a downside in -hmm. terms of early voting and down ballot candidates. You know, Mm. you know, it's less so in New York, but in other states, if, for example, you were a Republican member of the state Senate in Ohio and it worked really well with Democrats, you know, the old fashioned bipartisanship, you might advertise that in your last week campaign on Columbus, Ohio television. But if uh, it's a party line vote, there are no incentives to talk about being bipartisan because all you're going to do is have people check the Democrat and Republican boxes because they don't know enough about the down ballot candidates. And of course, Mm -hmm. I don't know what happens in places like California and other Colorado and other places in the West where there are also hundreds of ballot referenda every two years of being voted on. Yeah. Um, I know we have lots of policy questions, but I'm just I'm fascinated that you're on your 11th presidential campaign. So when we first met, I was basically distracted because I was like, I just want to hear stories about you on the campaign trail. Can you just tell our listeners just one or two vignettes? What what's been your favorite campaign season or at least your most memorable campaign season? Okay, my most memorable was probably 92 where I was Time Magazine's person on the Clinton plane. 
And this was still a point where you can get some access to the candidate by traveling with him. By 2000, when I was uh, traveling with Bush and Gore, I came out of the um, uh, campaign having lot many wonderful vacations with all of my frequent flyer miles. And I got to know really closely Chris Lehane, who was the uh, Gore press secretary and his equivalent on the Bush campaign. But there was no access to the candidates. And it was like being, I remember coming back in 2000 and being asked, what is it like to be out with Bush? I said, that's like asking me, what is it like to be out at Yankee Stadium with Derek Jeter? I came about as close to Derek Jeter with mediocre seats at the old stadium as I ever did to watching Bush read speeches off the teleprompter. But 92 was a fascinating year seeing Bill Clinton evolve. Other years that just stick in my mind. I love, I, I wrote a book on the 2004 primaries, the Democratic primaries, one car caravan. Um, and it really, again, you could get access to John Kerry. You can get access to Howard Dean. You can get access um, to John Edwards, who were the serious candidates that year by being out there early. Once you had a superstar candidate, two superstar candidates in 2008 with Hillary and Barack Obama, Access was given out with an eyedropper. And, mm. and as a result, there was no benefits to being early. I remember going to New Hampshire, thinking of doing a reprise of my book, One Car Caravan, about 2008. I remember going to New Hampshire for Barack Obama's first unofficial visit to the first primary state. And after he gave his speech, there was a press conference. I counted. There were 127 chairs laid out for the press. All of them were filled. So once you have a situation where the 127 people were out there, it was really hard to get that kind of early access. That said, in some ways, 2020, the Democratic uh, primary race, even though it ended exceedingly abruptly, was really, really fascinating. And I will confess to the fact that I never thought Joe Biden, after he finished fourth in Iowa, fifth in the New Hampshire primary, could possibly get the nomination. But I I think the rush to judgment after the South Carolina primary around Biden was a lot to do with the total anti-Trump unity in the Democratic Party and the awareness that a, a, a protracted reprise of Hillary versus Bernie Sanders of 2016 would have been really uh, devastating for the party. I love New Hampshire and I would like Iowa if only they could figure out how to count votes with their cockamamie caucuses, which I don't think we will (laughs) see again. Uh, But uh, I do love uh, the theory of people run for president by starting in small states, talking to a hundred people and writing up since I think Biden's going to win, writing up a cover story for the New Republic on how Biden won, etc. I'm going to spend a lot of time in the next week going over the kind of speeches and Q&As that I saw Biden give to maybe 100 voters each um, in Iowa and New Hampshire. In fact, I, um, I said at the time 
The one certainty about the Biden campaign is you never worry about parking. <laughs> so <laughs> over 11 presidential campaigns now, and maybe since 1992, if that, that's sort of a splitting off point, what have you seen change in terms of, one, how candidates and their operations manage the press? And, you know, conversely, how the uh, press corps prepares to cover these campaigns. And has that been something of a uh, cat and mouse game o- over the years with, with adjustments? The biggest change was the iPhone. That I used to think even back in 92 or 2004, I would rather be with a candidate with 40 print reporters than with a candidate with me and one small TV crew from a low-frequency UHF station. Because the fact is that everyone in politics acts differently as soon as there's a camera on. And the poll point is, at the moment when everyone was their own camera person, politics permanently change. There is never an unguarded moment. Anyone seriously running for president knows that anything they say uh, could be a meme on Twitter in the next 15 minutes with video attached. And this is so much different than it was in 2004 and even 2008. And if I had to identify one thing, it is just the total layers of caution that um, the iPhone and the ubiquitous cameras have really brought to politics. Hmm. I know we have to let you go. Uh, and I know that journalists don't like to make predictions. Oh, God. Um, well, <laughs> well uh, let me put it this way. I have very little risk here. Because it goes like this. If Trump wins, I'm going to become a full-time vaudeville correspondent. Uh, not deal with anything that happened before 1920. So if I'm wrong, I have my exit strategy all planned. Actually, I also just agreed as a favor to a friend um, to do Australian television at four in the morning on election night. And um, uh, part of the deal is they will help with asylum. Right. <laughs> That's a good deal. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I may have chosen New Zealand. Oh, I, I would too, but... Uh, <laughs> But um, I, I have already gone to the website, and shockingly enough, as a journalist, I don't have the cash to invest in a ready business in New Zealand necessary to get expedited emigration. No, oh. but seriously, going back to predictions, on one hand, I'm a person who didn't know who was going to be president of the United States at 9 p.m. on election night 2016. On the other hand, I really just think there are just too many things pointing Biden's way and that I just really think that Trump's road to victory is so narrow and so unlikely that I'm a little higher than the Nate Silvers and say that I'm above 95%. And I'm hopeful that we will know by midnight on election night from some of the early states, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Ohio, and Iowa, all of which were Trump states in 2016, all of which count votes absentees when returned or count early. So we should have 
decent representative returns from all of them. And if Biden has won two of them, say Arizona and North Carolina, no matter what happens in Pennsylvania, it is close to statistically impossible for Trump to win. Oh, Walter, thank you so oh, much for so joining much us. I mean, listen, do you <coughs> promise us that you'll come back, please? Absolutely, absolutely. As, as long as you're and, not in Australia, and, even if you're in Australia. Oh, no, and also, <laughs> as a vaudeville correspondent, it's all New York vaudeville. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. Listen, I, you know, I've always said Harry Siegel's my favorite New York journalist, but he's got some competition, I gotta say. Oh, well, I gotta still, say. still, one of the great <laughs> tragedies of our pandemic is we never got our lunch. I know, but listen... I have a feeling 2022 is our year. Oh, God. (laughs) F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests, David Plotz of CityCast and Walter Shapiro of The New Republic, our executive producer is Alex Brooke Lynn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Wear a mask, get a flu shot, wait in line to vote, and we'll be back next week for a special post-election day gab fest. Till then. <laughs>